I'm Jessica, and this is Dear Rosie. Whether this is your first time listening or you've been with me from the beginning, Dear Rosie is all new and I can't wait to catch you up. My name is Jessica. I've been living out of a suitcase since 2012 when I lost my job in New York City and hit the road. I've traveled quite a bit and met a lot of fascinating people, and I've become increasingly convinced that being willing to ask difficult questions, lean into uncertainty, and be brave enough to think and act outside the box is what makes for a rich and satisfying life. I don't think everybody should live like I do, but I am convinced that each of us has the ability to work with what we're given and build a life that feels good from the inside out. In this second season of the podcast, I'm opening up my perspective wide. I'm going to answer questions from you, questions about travel, finding your footing in uncertainty, and doing work that you love. And I'm going to talk with some of the most interesting people I know about the way they think, what they've struggled with, and how they're consciously creating a life they love. I've been floored by what each of them have shared with me, and I can't wait for you to hear it too. Dear Rosie, Can you talk a bit about apologies? Growing up, nobody in my house apologized for anything. And now, whenever I do something that's hurt someone else, I freeze up and get defensive. I just don't know what to say. After some space and time, I realized that I should have said something, or if they get mad at me, I realize that they had some valid feelings that deserve to be acknowledged. But in the moment, I just feel defensive and attacked. How can I get beyond my own issues and get better at apologizing when I hurt someone? Sincerely, sorry. Wow. Okay, first of all, sorry. I want to commend you for even thinking about this, let alone asking me about it. I think, you know, whenever you are in any kind of a relationship with someone, whether it's a working relationship, a friendship, a romantic relationship, a partnership, you know, just any kind of relationship, we are going to hurt each other. It's just going to happen. And it's going to happen when we don't mean for it to happen. And it's going to happen sometimes when we mean for it to happen. But the very nature of relationships means that we are going to hurt each other from time to time. And knowing what to do with that hurt when you have either unintentionally or intentionally hurt someone else um, is a really great healing thing to know how to do. Um, It's funny that you asked me this because learning how to accept criticism and hurt and apologize effectively is something that I've been working on for a long time. I obviously still have a long way to go as we all do, but it's something that I think I've gotten a bit better at and I would love to talk about it with you. So the first thing that I would say is If you realize that someone is hurt because of something that you did, and maybe they have brought it up to you, maybe they're really mad, maybe they're sad, maybe they're kind of quiet, maybe they're being passive aggressive, maybe they haven't brought it up yet, but you can tell, you know, whatever the case is, think of that person as having an open wound. And the first thing that you need to do with an open wound is address it. So if you have someone come to you and say, hey, it really hurt me when you did this, or I'm really mad that you did this or whatever. A lot of times when people are really hurt, they're not super coherent, (laughs) you know, and that's okay. That's, that's part of it. But, you know, they're overwhelmed with emotion. A lot of times they're feeling a lot of feelings and they're hot. And so what is going to help 
most is for you to not get hot too. So if someone comes to you and says, hey, it really pissed me off when you did this. And I, you know, they start talking about what pissed them off. First of all, resist the urge to get hot and heated with them. And think about what they're saying and do your best to see through the hot emotion and see what they might be really feeling. So someone once told me that anger is a secondary emotion, which means that something is always sitting beneath anger and usually it's hurt or sadness. And so if someone comes to you and they're really angry, try and do your best to see their sadness rather than responding to their anger. So someone says, hey, I really hate that you did this. It really pissed me off. Take that in. Realize that something that you did, whether unintentionally or intentionally, hurt them and caused this reaction in them. And so the most loving and compassionate thing that you can do is address it head on and acknowledge your role in it. And above all, do not use the word if. So if someone says, hey, it really pissed me off that you didn't show up to this thing that you said you were going to come and do. Like, where were you? What happened? Why weren't you there? You say, I'm so sorry that I didn't show up. And I'm so sorry that I let you down. You don't say, I'm so sorry if I let you down. You don't say, I'm so sorry if I hurt you. You obviously did. (laughs) So... The, the best and kindest and most loving thing that you can do is to acknowledge the pain and take responsibility for it. I am so sorry that I hurt you. End of story. Boom. The next thing, step two, is move into empathy. Do your best to try and put yourself in their shoes for a moment. If you are on their side of things and you had been going to this thing that someone else had said they were going to do and they said they were going to show up and they didn't god that would kind of suck right like they don't know your intention they don't you know like it it kind of doesn't matter your intention because regardless they got hurt and so you move into empathy for a second for as long as you can stand really and then you say yeah i I understand that me not showing up hurt you. And if I was in your position, that would probably hurt me too. That would probably make me really mad. Man, I'm so sorry that I hurt you. I'm so sorry that I made you mad. Always come back to that. Acknowledge their pain, acknowledge their feeling, and take ownership for your role in it. Then, and only then, after you have acknowledged and taken responsibility and moved into empathy and validated their response, then and only then and only if it's helpful and only if you're not doing it to clear your name and cover your butt, do you say, if it's helpful at all, this is what was going on that caused me to do this. So this is where you say, I'm so sorry. I didn't mean to hurt you. I understand that I did, but this is what was going on. I got called into work at the last minute and my phone died and blah, 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 whatever. Whatever your reasoning or whatever your perspective is, this is when you bring it in. This is not the time to say, well, I'm sorry you're mad, but I would blah, 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 blah. No. You are here to serve and heal their pain as much as you can. Side note, a big mistake that people often make when they're apologizing is they go straight to this step. Someone says, oh, I, I was really hurt by you doing this or by you not doing this. And you say, oh, yeah, well... I just, I have this issue and like it started in high school and I just, I know that I'm bad at this and blah, blah. No, 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 no. This is not your therapy session. You get attention later. Your reasoning for hurting them is not helpful to them at the beginning. It might be helpful at step three or 
way further down the line. But you only bring it up after you have acknowledged their pain, taken responsibility for it, and tried to empathize with it. Once you do those things and you say, I'm so sorry, I know that I hurt you. It totally makes sense. I would have been hurt too. If it's helpful, here's what happened. Again, I'm so sorry that I didn't show up. I would love to reschedule. Would you be willing to? Then you move into that. But you will be amazed at how much it helps the other person just to acknowledge and validate their feelings and for you to take responsibility regardless of your intention. And then a lot of times what happens is, so let's say you didn't show up. You say, I'm so sorry I didn't show up. Man, I'm so sorry that I hurt you. I probably would feel the same way in your position. That makes total sense. I'm really sorry. If it's helpful, I, I got called into work. My phone died, blah, 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 blah. But no matter what, I didn't show up for you. And I realized that. And I'm, I'm really sorry that I left you hanging. That person has just had their feelings acknowledged, their pain dealt with, and maybe it hasn't been all resolved in that moment, but oftentimes what happens is then that person uh, feels freed up a bit and then they can go, I really appreciate you saying that. Thank you. Wait, but what happened at work? Tell me about that. Then You know, it's like their gaping wound has been dealt with and um, treated. And now you can move forward into maybe talking about your stuff. Or maybe if this is something that has happened a bit, (laughs) maybe this is a recurring thing. Maybe then you talk about, hey, so this happens a lot. Like, I totally understand that you don't mean to, but like, It still hurts every time when you do this, even though I know you're not trying to hurt me. So how can we talk about ways to fix this or maybe I can change my expectations or if I know that it's only going to be like this because you're working on this project at work and this will be over in three months or whatever, then you move on from that. But again, the key thing to remember is that This person that you care about and that cares about you is in pain and they're in kind of like white hot pain and they're bringing it to you because they care about you and because they need your help in resolving it. And if you can put aside your ego and your own hot emotions, if you can resist the urge to get heated with them and see their emotion as an expression of their care for you and own up to your role in their pain, empathize, and then explain for their benefit, not yours. That's going to make for a really great apology. And that's going to make for ultimately a stronger relationship moving forward. So, I hope that answers your question. I'm obviously (laughs) really passionate about good apologies. So um, I'm, yeah, again, I'm extremely impressed that you asked this question. And yeah, send me another message if you want to talk more about it. But that said, I am so excited for you to hear my conversation with today's guest, Laurel Daly. Um, I have never gotten an apology from Laurel Daly. I don't think I've ever needed one, um, but I have a feeling she would be a really good apologizer if she needed to. Um, Laurel is a multi-hyphenate. She is a creative, she is a hard worker, and as you'll hear in our conversation, she has built a life for herself so far that is intentional and thoughtful and she really puts her money where her mouth is and she's not afraid to think outside the box. And I just freaking love that about her. So I won't spoil it anymore. I'm just going to get right to it. So without further ado, here is my conversation 
with Laurel Daly. Um, all right. Yes. Laurel Daly. Yes. Welcome to Dear Rosie. Thank you so much. I'm so excited to be talking with you today. One, just because I'm literally tearing up as I'm thinking about this. (laughs) One, just because I adore you and I feel so lucky to have gotten to know you even more in this last year. In the last few months, actually. Mm -hmm. But anyway, um, I wanted to talk to you today because you are someone that I not only adore, but really respect and admire in terms of how you have built a life centered on creativity that doesn't follow any pre-prescribed path that I have ever seen anyone take. Like you have really done a lot of things for yourself and by yourself. And it seems like you are still actively carving out a life that you love. Sounds like a Robert Frost poem. <laughs> it sounds like I'm a cliched Robert Frost poem, but no. in the best way, but in a good way. In, a, in the best way. Having to be the best known poem, but in the best way. That, <laughs> talking about that. Fun. <laughs> so, okay. It, everything that I could wrap up about all the things you do, you are a graphic designer, mm-hmm. you are a photographer, mm-hmm. you are a power lifter, <laughs> and you are an adventurer. Mm-hmm. Am I forgetting anything? Any other... Whiskey drinker. Whiskey drinker. Yes. I mean, if I were not so deeply, inconveniently attracted to men, I would just be <laughs> crawling on hands and knees, like begging <laughs> you to marry me. And we would ride off into the sunset in matching jumpsuits, and it would be great. Yes, God, if only this cursed, this cursed dream. Okay, so all of those things, you know, the graphic design and the photography, you know, those are things that kind of go hand in hand sometimes. But then, you know powerlifting and um, whiskey drinking and all of these things, I'm very curious about how, (laughs) I'm trying to think of an elegant way to say, how you felt comfortable going after all of this stuff. (laughs) (laughs) So let's go back. So where did you grow up? I grew up in Oregon, in Salem, which is the capital. Talk to me about, like, I grew up in a very... It was like a medium, small to medium-sized suburb outside San Francisco. And I feel like a lot of the things that I saw, it, it seemed like everybody was generally interested in the same things, generally wanted to mm-hmm. just replicate the life that we were living. Mm-hmm. And it took me a long time to realize and feel comfortable wanting and being interested in things outside of that. Mm-hmm. Did you grow up in an environment that, like, fostered free thinking, or was that something you came to later in life? Um, I would say yes to both. Mm, okay. <laughs> Tell me uh, we, yeah, I think part of it is that I, I think I demonstrated that I was a free thinker at a very, very young age. I think the, the creative streak, the artistic streak, the do-what-I-want streak has, has always been there. But I grew up in an environment that also allowed for that to be the case. Mm. My sister and I were homeschooled, and so I had a lot of... I didn't... I was homeschooled, too. Really? Yeah. Till when? We've never talked about this. Have I was never? homeschooled until fifth grade. Okay. And then I went to school, but then it was like, ooh. Yeah, not and ready. it was part-time in middle school, and then I went back to school full-time in high okay. school. Wait. I... All the way through eighth grade, and then just <gasps> started public high school. Day one as a was freshman. Was that traumatizing? No, I was ready. Okay. I was really ready. And yeah. like the middle school years were tough. Yeah, it yeah, was yeah. like the growing pains. Like I probably, I was like the baby that stayed in the womb like two, mm. three, four weeks longer than yeah, she yeah, yeah. should have in that regard. Um, you know, hindsight, of yeah, course. Exactly. But uh, yeah, I remember I, I have really strong memories of my very first day of high school and just thinking the whole time, I'm ready for this. Wow. Like this is, this is where I am now. This is the right choice. Here I am. I'm in this school of... I don't know, 15, 1600 students. And this is what I'm doing. And I'm ready. That's such a like, that says so much about you and your <laughs> levels of like, 
awareness and <laughs> preparedness. Like you're like, ah, yes, I am 14 years yes. old or whatever. Yes. Like, exactly. And yes, this is appropriate yes. for where I am yes. in my development and what I, I'd like to accomplish. I'm, so you started high school oh, yeah. and then, yeah, what was oh, yeah. that like? So to get back to the answering the question yeah, yeah. that you actually asked me, my favorite movie ever, ever, mm-hmm. ever, ever growing up was The Little Mermaid, which came out in 1989. Yes. So I was five when okay. it came out. Yeah. And at that point, I had two thoughts, one of which was, I am like her. Mm. And the second of which was, I'm going to be a Disney animator. I will do Whoa, it. Oh, wow. And I, because I realized I could do the very thing that made this movie so magical and wonderful to me. And then mm. I possessed the skill potentially to do that. Now, I, that that thought evolved over time, obviously. I wasn't five years old thinking that, but... Ariel is this mermaid who longs for another life, having legs, being human, going on land, walking around, you know, um, being in the land of, of humans. And so in some ways, I feel like it sort of <laughs> ingrained in me this sense that I, I could long for something as well. Oh, wow. And so in terms of thinking for myself, <laughs> that's always been there. It's, it's been encouraged. It was fostered and, and whatnot. But I think in terms of living a creative life, it's something that I decided almost right away mm. that that was going to be my destiny of sorts wow. and that I was going to stop at nothing to get there. And so far, luckily, have not encountered any sea witches <laughs> or talking eels <laughs> Fingers crossed. Haven't lost my voice. Yeah. So, like, yeah. there's something really good there. But, yeah. You know, so. Well, and also you have this ability that I think is unique in someone with a creative disposition where you have this very practical, like you said, like, I'm going to work for this. Mm-hmm. Like, and I think a lot of times people with creative aspirations get a little, like, um, I find myself doing this sometimes where I can be a little overly idealistic Mm. or a little bit like kind of waiting for someone to drop something in my lap. Mm. Mm -hmm. And I think that's interesting. Just sort of as you're talking about that, I'm like, oh, yeah, of course, because it it wasn't just that you had and have this ability to, you know, think outside the box and um, have this value for creative work. But you have a value for the work in creative work Mm -hmm. and you're willing and able and ready to Mm -hmm. do that, to get where you want to go. Yeah. And you know, I don't know. I think my parents probably instilled that in me on some level, but also I wanted something that didn't exist in Oregon. So Mm. I had to practice. I had to be good. I had Mm. to be better. And I also always knew I would move to California because I had to do that too. (laughs) There were certain steps in place. Like I always, and that's just, I think probably the way I think, like it just, I took piano growing up, you practice, Mm. you get better. I mean, I saw this happening. Had I ever touched a sport ball, I probably would have the same realization there but I usually was it was like they were hitting me in the face and stuff so there wasn't so much improvement there's (laughs) artful dodging (laughs) but the idea of work seemed to go hand in hand Mm. with a creative endeavor or with a creative pursuit I mean I can be idealistic at times but I just think it it's always struck me as something you know to go back to the Little Mermaid analogy, it's not a magic potion mm. or a bad deal with a sea witch. Right. <laughs> Otherwise known as maybe student loans. Right. I don't know. <laughs> um, <laughs> it's, it is through some, some sense of hard work and commitment to, commitment to what I'm doing and commitment to the craft, but also commitment mm. to working at it yeah. and toiling um, mm. in, a, in a way. Yeah. How has failure factored into that, you know, because anytime you try something new, you're going to hit a wall over and over and over again. Mm -hmm. Yeah. How has that, how has your relationship with failure changed or how have you come to think about your relationship with failure? Uh, You know, I had to get a queen size bed. So there was room for it in bed with me (laughs) at night to to keep me awake. (laughs) 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 Failure. Hmm. I don't know that I considered failure as an option when I was growing up. I would pull out a piece of paper. I would pull out a pen. I would not use pencils. Oh, wow. I did not believe I needed to erase. 
Get it, girl. There was no concept that I would have to erase something once I'd done it. Mm-hmm. It didn't really occur to me. And so I think in that regard, I've always moved forward and I've always thought that way. Like you move forward, mm, you just yeah. keep going. You yeah. have to. I mean, in piano too, I would make a mistake. Well, you don't stop the song. You have to keep going. Mm. As I've gotten older and as a, a professional, I think the mistakes that I've made haunt me more because they usually involve relationships and other people. And it's very mm. hard to know you've made a mistake. Like that's the stuff that's much harder to reconcile mm. for me. And I'm yeah. still learning. So what came first? What was the first creative venture that you embarked upon? My mom has a story that she tells about, and again, I was too young to even remember this. I was learning how to draw, but very, very young. And we would, I watched a lot of cartoons and I watched the Flintstones and there's like this little, and I haven't ever gone back and researched this, but there's a certain point in the Flintstones cartoon series where Barney Rubble, for a while, they drew his eyes and filled in. And then for another period of time, and I don't know which came first, his eyes were circles, like not filled in. And my mom noticed when I was copying, as I was drawing, I was noticing things like whether or not the eyes were filled in Mm. or if they were just open circles. And she thought, that's interesting that a child this young notices details like that. And so again, it's like precognition. Like I don't remember these parts about myself, but it's always been there. And Mm. so I think deciding I wanted to be a Disney animator was the first Mm. stroke of artistic, you know, intention. And that carried me through all of elementary school, all of high school, up into college, really. Um, Mm. And I would approach things along the way. I was like big into drama and I started to get into photography in high school. And there were just, there were always, there was always something I was pursuing, but the drawing and cartooning and illustrating was the first love Mm. for me. And is that what parlayed into graphic design? It's what parlayed into photography. Oh, really? Actually. Yeah. Because I went to school and I realized it, it was the first time I was probably 18, 19. And it dawned on me that The singular goal of being a character animator at Disney and nowhere else and nothing else and know-how was probably not the best career plan. So Mm. some of that pragmatism um, only caught up much later. (laughs) (laughs) That's all right. Sometimes you need like a good shot of idealism to carry you through some stuff. shooting star of a dream. (laughs) I took a bunch of art classes, a lot of drawing, painting, this and that, and I realized that the thing that I really loved about animation was not drawing itself as much as it was watching an entire scene play out and having some say in, in that scene and how that looked. Mm. Um, growing up, I would watch Disney movies and how I learned to draw was I would watch them and I would, I would find a moment that I thought, that's it. That's the moment. That's mm. what I want to draw. And I hit pause. But what I realized was, I was partaking in the act of photography without even realizing it. I was watching something take place. I was identifying the moment that was the moment Mm. that I wanted to stop and preserve and somehow participate in that moment. And um, so for me, I realized that there was so much about animation that I didn't love. So I didn't want to work up through the ranks of doing this thing or that thing. I really only had the, the drive to do this one specific thing. And it, it occurred to me at a certain point that photography also is that thing. For me, it's a, it's a way of participating in time. I remember uh, when I was a kid, I, we spent a lot of time at my local library. And I remember finding this book of Ansel Adams photographs. Mm-hmm. And like, I had no idea who he was, but I saw the book and I was like, ooh, this looks important. Yeah. And so (laughs) I was flipping through it. I was just kind of like, okay, black and white trees. I get it. I get it. I get it. But then I remember I I just kept coming back to it. And I remember after a while realizing that the art in what he was doing, I didn't have the vocabulary for this, but... I realized something about, there was something special about the fact that I was seeing something because he wanted me to see it. Mm -hmm. Uh, He wanted me to see this thing like this, Mm -hmm. framed like this. Mm -hmm. He didn't want me to see what was outside of this. He wanted me to see this. Mm -hmm. And I remember just thinking that made photography so much more personal Mm -hmm. to me, where it felt like. I'm really learning something about the photographer Mm -hmm. through their photographs about 
what they value, what they, um, how they see the world literally and figuratively, like, mm-hmm. you know, not to be cynical, but like now when everyone's a quote unquote photographer right. and everyone has an iPhone and mm-hmm. I think there are some great things that come along with that. But I think when you're someone who spends a lot of time and effort devoting yourself to being excellent Mm -hmm. in this creative art, Mm -hmm. there's something about it that I think it kind of like, it knits itself to your heart in a way. And Mm -hmm. that becomes a part of what you make and Mm -hmm. what people see. Does that feel? It does. Vim Vendors back to, you know, he's a filmmaker and photographer and Mm -hmm. he talks about photography as being an act in two directions. Mm -hmm. And so you, you see, the scene that's been set. You see the photo, but you also see what he calls a vague shadow of something else, the photographer Mm. in action, in motion. It's a matter of decision-making, but also of communication. Mm. Um, When I take a photo, the choices that I make that go into capturing that image, they also exist somehow tethered to what happens next, which is how it communicates to the person viewing that photo. Mm. And so in some ways, I, I don't... I don't make art that doesn't have that person in mind. Mm. It's a partnership between myself and whoever it comes into contact with it. It's me mm. communicating something yeah. with that person or those people. It seems like this is just a part of who you are now. Like whether or not anyone pays you to do this mm-hmm. ever again, which they should because you're very talented. <laughs> it seems like, yeah, it's just an extension of the way that you live and interact with the world. It is. And I, so design is another aspect of that. Mm. Writing is an aspect of that. I mean, this creative life of which we're talking about Mm. is, is an extension of that. But I would say photography for me is the, the primary motivating Mm. um, factor there. And I have an interesting relationship with it now because of how much things have changed in the world of communication. You think through social media, definitely not trying to age myself or sound like a grumpy old lady on a porch because I love Instagram. I really do. But it's changed the relationship of artists to art. It's changed Mm -hmm. the relationship of viewers to art. Mm -hmm. It's definitely changed the way that potential clients think about that process mm. of creation I've I've heard it referred to sort of unsettlingly now as content which is so fascinating to me because what they're talking about is this drive to make something this photography skill that I've cultivated for decades at this point mm-hmm. I don't want to get caught in that endless cycle of buzzwords and catchphrases mm-hmm. and saying well it's content now and it's this and you know right. the new like users and engagement are the it's it's like the new currency and I never, ever want to think about the people that view my work as that. Mm-hmm. I don't want to monetize them. It's, it's very much a conversation between myself and other people. And it's always going to be that way, even though the channels that I can use might change. Mm-hmm. And the ways in which I might continue to have that conversation will change. But that doesn't change that it's still a conversation. It sounds like you imbue a real dignity on your viewers. You and I both really love the TV show Frasier. Um, But I remember reading an interview with the creators of Frasier and they said, you know, we really wanted to make something that assumed a level of intelligence Mm -hmm. in our viewers. Mm -hmm. And I think that when you make really beautiful things there is an element where you are asking the viewer to meet you somewhere. Mm -hmm. And I think the best art is inherently an invitation. Yes. Is, um, this is what I have to say about this. Mm -hmm. Now, what do you have to say about it? Yes. And, you know, I was trained in the theater and we would talk all the time about the catharsis of performance and how the best theater leaves you feeling a little shaken and a little, yeah, a little shaken and a little stirred. Like, oh, I have some questions now. That's a big part of what it sounds like you do, where it's Mm -hmm. like, you have something to say, you have something to share, but ultimately at the end of that, it's an invitation and it's a question. Well, and we, we are all experiencing 
this life right here, right now together on some level. And there's a lot of difference there. But I think when I put an image out there, it's a way of saying, look, this is how I've seen this world. This is how I've seen something beautiful. Or this is how I've seen how that light just there fell on that thing right there. Do you want to join me in that? Would you like to see that too? Mm. I think photography is an inherently generous act Mm. because it is sharing that perspective. And that doesn't imply that all photographs have to be beautiful Mm. in order to still be generous. I think they can be challenging. They can be unsettling. They can be truthful. They can be many things um, while still being generous. Yeah. Because it's about generosity of spirit. Not to use like a super wooey term, but like it's about, yeah, it's going back to that like little revelation I had as a kid where it's like, this is how I see things. This is what Mm -hmm. I think is valuable. This Mm -hmm. is, or this is what I think needs attention Mm -hmm. or, you know, whatever it is. Mm -hmm. And there's something generous about that about being vulnerable and Mm -hmm. opening up that part of yourself where you're brave enough to say this is what I think is important and valuable Mm -hmm. do you also or what else do you think is participating in this inherently subjective medium where everyone has a different opinion and you're kind of Mm -hmm. opening yourself up to that on some level too Um, people might disagree Speaking of like inviting other people to participate in it, you have, and speaking of social media, Mm -hmm. you have a little hashtag, which you have coined, get out of Dodge. Get out of Dodge. So you are also, I should have listed this beginning, but you are a prolific adventurous. And so talk to me about how that has become a part of your life and what role does that play in your existence? A big one. And I think the big difference between you and I, though I do travel internationally, is that the big thing with Get Out of Dodge specifically is that the travel website is about California specifically. Mm -hmm. It uh, travel guides for a weekend or a week away in California specifically based on all the different places I've been because I, I chose this state as my home. And I think we can become very bored with our homes. Mm. Um, I think about the way I grew up in Oregon and how I was very bored by Oregon Mm -hmm. uh, growing up. And now looking back, it's just like, I am crazy. (laughs) That place is beautiful and amazing and such a, it's just a gift to the world. But, you know, you, you see something enough and you begin to think, well, there's, there's nothing new. There's no new territory where I live. Why would I find anything of excitement there? And I think the whole point of Get Out of Dodge is to find excitement there, Mm. where you live. Um, In this case, for me, it's finding the absolute best and the most most surprising that California has to offer. Mm. And I take that approach anywhere I go, but the world is vast and I am, you know, cash poor. So I don't get to travel worldwide, but when I do get to travel, I... I want to see something about a place that is surprising. I think you and I have something really firmly in common here, which is that we both value sort of getting out there as like a part of our lives, Mm -hmm. you know, instead of, I think, I remember when I first started traveling, I would have people say to me like, Oh, you're so lucky. You know, I, Uh, you know, my husband and I have been saving up for da-da-da-da, and, like, great, Mm -hmm. you know? Like, I think any travel is good travel, (laughs) you know? Like, go for it, get out there. Yeah. Um, But I think for me, I really discovered that for at least this portion of my life, and I don't think, you know, this is going to continue for the rest of my life by any stretch, but I it has really um, sort of created this real deep sense of value in that like just get out there and see something yes just get out there and find something and for me a lot of times that that is international but I've noticed wherever I am especially if I'm somewhere that I don't really want to be (laughs) like if I'm like I mean I'd always rather be in Italy so that's just the case but wouldn't we all wouldn't we all but I you know I'll think like okay when I'm not here Like, eventually I will leave this place. Mm -hmm. And when I leave this place, what will I miss Mm -hmm. about this place? Mm. Or what will I wish I had done more of or done at all 
while I was here. Yeah. And then I try and go and whether it's like, okay, I'm having tacos for lunch today or, you know, like <laughs> in and out again, right? in and out again. <laughs> or it's like, I'm in California. I've never been to Mexico. Like, mm. what is my problem? You yeah. know, like, let me get down there. I think it might be easy for someone to look at my life and be like, oh, she's in Italy or she's in the UK or whatever. But yeah, I think that is something that you've integrated really beautifully into the fabric of your life. It's like, mm-hmm. this isn't a special occasion. This is just how I operate. Exactly. It's that I work and I have a home yeah. and I do this. And then I I go and see things. I explore. I go on trips. Mm-hmm. I, you know, it's very, it's less of a special occasion. And I think that's something that a lot of people who long for travel, but maybe don't have the budget or maybe they have kids or, you know, it's like, there's a way to still be a really wild adventurer Mm -hmm. and sleep in the same bed every night. Yes, exactly. (laughs) You've said that very well, because that is for me, it's, I want to make adventure part of my habit. It's part of my life. I don't look at a two-week block of vacation time and think, okay, how am I going to spend this once a year and then spend the rest of the year just in my life, so to speak. I want my life to be marked by those moments when I am able to get out of Dodge mm-hmm. and see something new um, and and experience the respite that comes even from getting out of town for just a day or going to someplace new and unusual or you know, going and spending time in a favorite spot. I mean, there's a a perfect example is um, a, a couple of examples, actually. So down in Costa Mesa, uh, across the street from South Coast Plaza, this like, huge mega mall in Orange County, but across the street from that in this nondescript business park tucked into a, sort of a canyon of, of business buildings and not even skyscrapers, but just office buildings or mirrored monoliths is this sculpture garden um, by Isamu Noguchi called the California Scenario. And it's meant to represent all the various um, like ecosystems in California. And Mm. it's this gorgeous sculpture garden that just exists quietly, unassumingly in the middle of all these office buildings. And I find it to be the most wonderfully peaceful place Mm. to go spend an afternoon. I mean, it's beautiful and the way the light moves throughout the space is just fascinating I mean it's art in the everyday and I absolutely love it Mm. (laughs) so I mean that's a perfect example of like finding something like that that's so close I can just run down there it takes me 30 minutes to get there and then I'm I'm transported into I I mean I guess literally the entire state of California based on (laughs) what that whole thing is about it's funny that you mentioned Nevada because the other thing I love to do is is to prove people wrong. I love the idea of crafting a perfect weekend itinerary in a place like Vegas for people who hate Vegas. Mm. And it's it's a mixture of art and good food and good drinks and nature. I mean, there's there's a state park less than an hour drive outside of the city that has incredible sandstone canyons and formations with these like swirls. It looks like a a wave. It's Mm -hmm. called the wave, um, fire wave. It looks like, like someone sketched it and then watercolored it. And it's, I mean, it's 45 minutes away. It's so close to the Vegas that tries to show itself off. And I, I love the idea of finding the hidden quirks that really give a place it's it's real character not mm. the kind of character that is in the travel brochure but something true of this place that makes it what it is mm. like the essence of a place like if you lived here what would you love about it? yes exactly mm. exactly so interesting I love that yeah all right so to completely pivot let's do it how did you get into powerlifting <laughs> <laughs> How indeed. You've been doing it for how many years now? At least five. Woo! It's been a while. I was kind of on my own fitness journey, and my sister and I decided we wanted to get gym memberships, and we wanted to commit to going to the gym. The types of workouts that were available, just to say aerobics or (laughs) Pilates, um, didn't seem as appealing. We wanted something that would be effective, something that would be approachable, something that could 
strengthen our bodies, but also give us something to work toward that mm. instead of just spending hours on an elliptical machine, just thinking about salad and hating right. ourselves. <laughs> uh, so we started going to the gym and her boyfriend at the time, now husband, uh, has lifted weights his whole life. He hasn't always been a power lifter, but he's always been uh, lifted weights and been into fitness and whatnot. And he he was a power lifter at that point and a competitive one, actually. And he said, well, why don't you, I'll make you a little program. I'll just give you a few things to do with like the weight machines. I mean, just very basic stuff. So we did that for a few months. And then he said, okay, now I've made you another program. It includes some more free weights, things like, you know, using using dumbbells and whatnot. So we started doing that and went, okay, all right, this is, we like this. This is good. It's feeling good. But you know, we don't know how to deadlift and we don't really know how to squat. So he said, well, why don't you come into my gym and meet with my coach, my powerlifting coach, and she can just meet with her once. She can just show you if what you're doing is, is good and if yeah. you're like totally hopeless or whatever. So we met with her once and then started training with her faithfully after that for about five years or oh four God. years or something. Um, it just became this interesting wonderful thing this part of our lives I'm not good at it so it's not that I have a particular (laughs) aptitude for it but I I love it and I love the ever-expanding community that it's brought me I love that I now have friends that I never would have met otherwise I met my boyfriend through powerlifting yeah which also is an interesting I love feeling capable I love feeling strong I changed the water cooler at work the other day yeah, and yeah. I didn't have to struggle. It just, it just popped right on and I felt good about that. <laughs> Obviously it's making you physically stronger, mm-hmm. but it just, I was talking with a friend of yours the other day. She said it just makes her feel so much more. She's also a power lifter mm-hmm. and it makes her feel. Is she also a Jessica? She is also a Jessica. <laughs> so she's excellent on a number of fronts, but yeah. Um, yeah, she was like, I just feel more like, at home in my body like yes. I feel more prepared if yes. that makes sense there's a settledness um that I feel knowing that I've pushed myself to a limit of sorts mm. and I you know powerlifting is such that you push yourself to those limits again and again and again mm-hmm. um and sometimes you and and hearkening back to the beginning of the conversation part of it is also that you fail right um you don't push yourself to those limits unless at times you fail and for me, the hardest part has been learning how to get back on the proverbial horse because it can be very rattling and nerve wracking to fail at something. Uh, if you fail during a squat, for example, you're kind of crouched down. You've got however many pounds on your back. And if you lose your balance or start to wobble or cannot stand back up, you have to trust the people spotting you on either side or the, the trainer, stand, you know, the coach behind you to help you. You have to trust that you know how to dump the bar correctly if it comes to that. And then you have to be able to do it again. This is a big part of why you have been able to carve out this really beautiful life for yourself is that you consistently put yourself in positions. I was talking um, with a therapist recently and they were talking about the window of tolerance. Mm. Now, we all have, like if you're trying to do something new, for Mm. example, we all have a window of tolerance where it's like anything within that window, I'm totally comfortable doing. Yep. But if we want to grow, we have to consistently do things right outside our window of tolerance. And we have to do that for a bit. Yes. And then the window opens a little bit. And, but if you try and do something too far outside the window of tolerance, then you'll like backslide and, you know, be back where you started. But she was talking about how all growth comes from consistently putting yourself in that uncomfortable position mm-hmm. of saying, like, this is a little bit beyond what I can tolerate, mm-hmm. and I am going to do it anyway, mm-hmm. and I'm going to do it again mm-hmm. tomorrow or next week or whatever it is until I get to where I want to be. It's an apt metaphor because... It extends to the fact that with strength training, your muscles are, are tearing themselves down mm. and then rebuilding and tearing themselves down. They're pushed past the point outside of their threshold or their window, and then they they rebuild, and they rebuild 
stronger and they rebuild to be able to handle more. Mm-hmm. So yeah, powerlifting for me has been that. And I think it also, you know, it, it's been a long history in terms of, I didn't play sports growing up. And so I don't have that team mentality. I've never had a coach. I've, I've also grown up inheriting a lot of baggage around the gym and bodies. And, you know, I think you go into a a gym and it's, it's covered in mirrors and there's all these expectations about what men will do and what women will do and how you're supposed to dress and how you're supposed to look. And when you're pushing your body to the extreme, the last thing you want to think about is how you look. Mm -hmm. Um, Unless how you look includes what your form is doing, whether or not you're going to get injured. Um, But the last thing you want to think about is what your hair is doing or what your makeup is doing or if you're sweating too much or if your clothes are too tight or if you're showing too much cleavage or if you look like an idiot or if someone's sizing you up or if you don't stretch very well or whatever it is. And I think a lot of gyms carry that baggage and a lot of those negative connotations. I mean, I mentioned earlier about, you know, spending a lifetime on a, on an elliptical thinking about salad. And I, I say that sort of ruefully because for a long time that was, that was the idea. Um, you know, as, as a woman, it was kind of like, well, you want long and lean muscles, right. which is not physically possible. Right. You want to lengthen things. You want to actually attempt the impossible, look amazing while doing it. And, and all of this is, is achievable by doing some very light cardio mm-hmm for 45 minutes or something like that. And it, it feels disordered. Mm. Um, and what I love about strength training is that there's not a single mirror in the gym that I work out at. And if you're not making some kind of terrible face or tortured (laughs) grunting, if you're not just looking the absolute worst you've ever looked, like you're not trying hard enough and you're probably not doing it right. Mm. And there's something tremendously freeing about being able to be the absolute worst version of yourself and having that be okay. Mm-hmm. And actually that, you know, that was the first year of knowing uh, Mikey, my boyfriend, that was all he saw was me at my absolute worst <laughs> again and again and again, trying and failing and trying and failing and learning how to trust him even though my body was telling me, run away, run away. Like, do not attempt, do not attempt. And so I think about like, just learning how to trust another person with your self, with your body, with your ability, with your success, and learning how to trust yourself with those same things. And then also learning how to just gleefully let yourself go sweat and grunt and make weird expressions and have your body contorted in weird ways and to not be attractive Mm. in a conventional sense and to not care. Mm. I think there's just something so transformative about that. So that strength, the strength that results is, is a strength that sort of transcends muscular strength. It's Mm. also about like a strength of self, a Mm. strength in, confidence and self-confidence and trusting that I can, that I am capable of something and that I can try. There's also, I think something really beautiful about it's not for nothing. Like so often to get like a little more big picture with it, like so often pain in our lives feels purposeless. Mm -hmm. Like it just feels like I'm just being subjected to this unnecessary like, why is this happening to me? Yeah, or it's why is this so hard? Yes, We're exactly. rolling the boulder up the hill only for it to roll back exactly. down. Exactly. What is the point? But then I think conversely, we can also get into this rut of like, especially as adults, of like, well, if this is not going to be purposeful, air quotes, mm-hmm. like, if I'm not going to make money doing this, mm-hmm. if this isn't going to save me time, like... But we're optimizing ourselves yes. out of ever having to fail. Yes, exactly. I've been thinking a lot lately about, I was similarly not athletic as a kid. I hated PE. I, anyway, that's a whole other thing. But even as an adult, I, you know, I would go through stretches where I would go to the gym for a while, but I never, even with the endorphins flowing, it always felt like sheer torture to me. (laughs) It just felt so bad and it never felt 
good. You know, yeah. I would leave with a certain sense of accomplishment because yeah. it was like, oh, I went and did the hard thing. But yeah. I was never like, aha, I am, you know, becoming more myself. Yeah. I was listening to this doctor the other day and he called the body the unconscious mind, hmm. which I thought was so fascinating. That because is fascinating. I don't know if we've talked about this. I had surgery last year mm-hmm. and I remember right as I was coming out of the surgery, like in the week post-surgery, mm-hmm. I'm on all these painkillers. I'm like high as a kite. And I remember being told like, you might feel a little depressed. That's normal. My doctor was really good about walking me through. Yeah. What is essentially the opiate crisis in the span of two weeks. (laughs) Yes, literally. Yeah. Yeah. Um, And and also, like, what to expect emotionally. Like, days Mm. one to three, you're going to feel this. Days three to five, you might feel this. Days five to seven, like... That's so helpful. That was amazing. But I remember, yeah, it was like day five or something, and I was laying in my bed, and for all intents and purposes, like wasn't really feeling much pain. Mm -hmm. Like I could feel like the dull ache of like hearing something from another room, but it wasn't impressive. Like gardeners outside. And mentally I felt totally fine. Mm -hmm. I was not, I did not feel depressed. Mm -hmm. I did not, you know, very thankfully I felt pretty good. Yeah. But I remember becoming aware of this really intense sadness in my body. Oh. And I, it was so odd because it was like, I couldn't think of anything that was making me sad. Yeah. I, I was not experiencing some of the things that he said I might go through about like, yeah. Oh, you might worry about this. You might mm-hmm. be scared of it. I mm-hmm. didn't feel that, but it was like from the neck down, my body, it felt like heavy with Mm. grief like it was so sad yeah and I talked about it later with our mutual friend Bex yes and you know she worked in healthcare for a while and she was like you know it's interesting because when people talk about painkillers when they think about painkillers they think oh you know you're your body just isn't feeling that pain. Mm-hmm. But that's not true. That's not the way that painkillers work. Your she mind like, just isn't aware of it. Exactly. The painkiller, it just creates a barrier. It stops the pain signal from getting to your brain. Mm-hmm. So your body is still experiencing the pain, mm-hmm. but your brain doesn't know about it. Yeah. That realization and that revelation of like my body has a level of intelligence that is separate from my brain. Mm-hmm. My body knows things that my mind does not know. Yes. My body is experiencing things that my brain does not know. That was truly a life-changing revelation to have. Because I grew up in this very conservative church environment that was all about your body is weak and must be controlled. Mm-hmm. Really, <laughs> like it was yes. like it's like the latent effects of Protestantism or something. I don't totally, know. Totally, yes. But I agree. It's you're disconnected from the body because the it's fleshly, it's earthly, it's not what will go with us. Right. It's not what leads you to higher thinking. Right. All of this stuff. But right. In the last, which is sinful, I think, as a way of thinking. Just as right. a side note, and that's a podcast <laughs> for another time. Anyway. <laughs> I'll come back next week. Yeah, the episode on. <laughs> um, yeah. But in the last year, I, that has become more and more a part of the way that I think about myself mm-hmm. and the way that I experience the world. And, you know, even recently, I have been having experiences like that again, where I haven't had surgery, you know, like I'm totally fine. And intellectually, I'll feel pretty good. You know, I'm like working on some stuff, whatever. But then I'll like wake up in the mornings and my body feels traumatized. Mm -hmm. Like it just feels so sad and worried. And I'm like, babe, we're okay. Like it's all right. And all of this to say, I have been listening to and reading a lot about how our body needs to be treated as its own entity sometimes. Mm -hmm. And so the point that I'm trying to make with all of this is that I think what you're describing about your experience, powerlifting, where the intellectual self-consciousness of exercise, you know, the reason that 
I think I've hated exercise my whole life is because it feels like a punishment Mm -hmm. because it's like, I was a chubby kid. And so it's like, you're fat. You need to go to the gym and fix it. You dirty animal. Yeah. You know, hurt yourself and fix it. Exactly. It it never, like when I would get to that, like really tough, sweaty part, it Mm -hmm. felt like I was being punished because I was like, whereas now I've started approaching physical activity and exercise as like, my body is this like soft, squishy animal that needs a, to go for a walk. Like yes. this little gal needs to get worked out. Yeah. She needs, she's got some stuff she's yeah. got to work out. To and trot around the block. Totally. I was going for a walk the other day and I could just feel my brain be like, oh, this is so boring. I don't want to do this. And I like snapped. I was like, this is not about you. Yeah. This is not for you. Yeah. This is for the body. And she's got to work some stuff out. So yeah. you're just going to deal with it. Netflix is for you. Yes. Walks are not for you. All day on my laptop is for you. Yeah. This is for her. Yeah. And we're going to let her have this. Yeah. And all that to say, it sounds like you have found this really beautiful, special thing with powerlifting where it's like, it's exactly what you were saying. It's like, it's not about how cute do I look in these pants? What weird face am I making when I'm bending in these pants? You know, like it's about what your body is Mm -hmm. and what your body can do. Mm -hmm. And that affects your sense of self. It affects your intellect. It affects all of it. Well, and I think it strengthens the connection between mind and body in a lot of ways, because I am learning a new way of doing something intellectually. My brain is telling my body, move your knees out, keep your back straight, keep your chest up, whatever it is, whatever instructions I've learned from my coach. And I'm trying to strengthen that link between the two. And also to give my body you know, a little bit more of a stake in the company because the mm. brain is usually the the so freaking primary bossy. stakeholder that says, well, I've had a bad day, so today's going to be terrible or this is terrifying, run away or whatever it is. And it's so refreshing to give my body more of a say mm. in how this goes. Yeah. And in how, in how we complete that lift or complete that workout And to listen sometimes when I'll go in feeling fine, feeling great emotionally, and my body, like sometimes the strength just isn't there. Mm. Weights that I could lift the week before, I cannot lift the next week. And there's no explanation. It just happens sometimes. Mm. Sometimes you ebb and flow. And I think there's something really valuable about knowing and accepting that that's where your body is that day. And that that's not a failure. That's not a step back. That's not backsliding. It's just where you are that day. And whatever you have to give to that workout is enough for that day. And that you're going to come back and do it again. Yeah. Because there'll be another day where you surprise yourself and you do more than you thought you could. And those days are wonderful too. Those mountaintop experiences, like it's wonderful. But I think just as important to acknowledge and accept when I'm not able to do the thing I set out to do. I love that. Back to failure. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I love that. I think that's a metaphor for everything we've been talking about, really. <laughs> um, okay. So before we go, yes. you are a whiskey connoisseur. Yes. I know nothing about whiskey, oh, so my. I have nothing intelligent to ask you, but I would like to know... Will you please describe to me as a as an uncouth, you know, just spectator, what is the best whiskey you had recently and what did you love about it? Here's what I would say. There would be I would be able to draw a link between powerlifting and whiskey and travel and photography. And for me that link is this. It's a way of being present in the world. Mm-hmm. Um powerlifting for me is a way of being present in my body and present to like physical activity. Photography is a way for me and travel too. Both are ways for me to be present in the world and in, um, in the day to day in where my feet can take me in what my eyes can see. And the, the, the way my body, my whole body senses what's around me. And when I'm taking a picture, it's not just an act with my eyes, but my whole body is present and active in that moment. And Drinking whiskey is actually very similar. Mm-hmm. Um, it's it's an inherently nostalgic act. We're taught, I think, that food is for consumption. 
you consume and you get energy and you move on. But it, it's also about enjoyment. And whiskey, I think, is so much about enjoyment and nostalgia and memory and the way our olfactory senses um, inform our memories and our emotions and how you can smell something and then taste it and the way it smells and tastes reminds you of walking down main street at Disneyland and the, the delicious waffle cone smell that comes out of one of the stores and how there's certain bourbons that will smell like that and even taste like that. And it's about slowing down and, and taking a little bit of liquid and swishing it around your mouth and, and letting yourself Wait and see what is conjured up there, what feelings, what memories, what experiences, um, what scent connections that you have to your past. What does it taste like, feel like, smell like? So in that way, I want to be present in this life in the best ways that I can. And drinking whiskey is also a way to do that. And so while I'm not answering your specific question, the larger question that I did answer is how do all these things connect in a creative life? Yeah. Because I don't, I don't consider them separate. The enthusiasm and sense of curiosity and, and joy that I experience in photography and travel and powerlifting and drinking whiskey and enjoying food and enjoying good conversation, it's all there. It's a sense of, of deep and grateful curiosity for the world around me and such gratitude that we exist, that mere existence is such a gift. I love that. I know, I know, you're probably in love with Laurel now too. Isn't she the best? I love what a hard worker she is and how practical she is about her creative pursuits. And to me, she just exemplifies someone who makes a practice out of making room for failure and consistently being grateful and present, which are things that I definitely need to work on. I hope you enjoyed this week's episode of Dear Rosie. If you did, pop by my Instagram, Dear Rosie Podcast, and send me a message. I'd love to hear what you thought, or if you just want to say hello. And if you have a question you'd like me to answer on the show, you can DM me on Instagram too. I'll be able to see who you are, but it'll be anonymous on the show. And if you like what's going on, you can subscribe on iTunes, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. And if you tell a friend, I'll kiss you the next time I see you. Until then, I'll see you next week. Thank you.